0: Hi, I'm Michelle Shepard, host of Uncover Charmini from CBC Podcasts. In 1999, 15-year-old Charmini Anandeville disappeared on her way to a job that police believed didn't exist. Four months later, her remains were found in a wooded ravine. I revisit the case that has stayed with me for over 20 years, ever since I first covered it as a cub crime reporter for the Toronto Star. You can find Uncover Charmini on CBC Listen or on your favourite podcast app.
1: This is a CBC Podcast.
0: Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall.
2: And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight,
3: fighting fear, shots were fired at two Jewish schools in Montreal overnight. A cantor whose synagogue is next to one of those schools says that despite his increasing anxiety, he won't succumb to hatred
2: pause and effect as israel agrees to humanitarian pauses in gaza we'll ask the palestinian Authority's representative in canada who might govern the strip after the fighting stops
3: she thought she was in the home stretch five years after surviving a wildfire a california woman has rebuilt her home and moved back in only to find out her insurance rates have skyrocketed so high she can barely afford to stay
2: Drawing bored, so bored. After angering the powerful Medici family, Michelangelo was facing a death sentence. So he hid out in an underground chamber for two months and passed the time doodling on what are now very artistically significant walls.
3: Nobody's vault but their own. Poor security made it easy for staff to steal millions from Costa Rica's national bank. But fortunately for that bank, their inside job didn't have an outside chance.
2: And muddled thinking. Lawmakers in Wisconsin want to declare the old-fashioned the state's official cocktail. Before you celebrate, you should know theirs is a regional variation that replaces the bourbon with brandy and adds 7-Up and sometimes an olive. As it happens, the Thursday edition, radio that thinks whoever makes one of those should be behind bars. The Jewish community in Montreal is on high alert tonight. As you've heard in the news, two Jewish schools in the city were targeted overnight by gunfire. Nobody was inside at the time, but staff arrived this morning to bullet holes in the front doors of both schools. Police say they're investigating and cannot confirm a link between the incidents. Earlier this week, a synagogue and Jewish center in a nearby suburb were targeted with firebombs, also in overnight attacks. Daniel Ben-Lolo is the Reverend Hazan at the Spanish and Portuguese Synagogue of Montre- Montreal, which is connected to one of the affected schools, Talmud Torah Elementary. We reached him in Montreal.
3: Reverend Ben-Lolo, how did you find out what had happened overnight?
2: Well, uh, to my shock, I
1: was uh, came into the synagogue this morning and uh, did our prayers uh, like we do every single day. And uh, after breakfast, I saw a police uh, coming in to, uh, to our synagogue to, uh, to ask some questions. And uh, there was a bullet uh, being uh, shot, of course, at the, at the, at the school. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, my phone didn't stop ringing, and emails and texts and Instagrams uh, have been pouring in.
3: Your grandson Goes to town. My Matoro.
1: grandson goes to that school, exactly. And uh, so many other grandsons and granddaughters and sons and daughters, uh, young people. And uh, it was appalling because we just witnessed what happened yesterday at Concordia University with um, university students. Mm-hmm. Um, and now it's happening to our. Younger population. This
3: was an and altercation that, between pro-Israel and, and pro-Palestinian exactly. groups at the university, and we've seen Correct. Th- these things happening at campuses uh, in, in many parts of the country. But in terms of of the bullet hole that you learned about, what does yes. that represent to you right now?
1: Well, it's a it's it's coming too close to home. Um, in a way that uh, we are afraid right now in every sense of the word, but we're very uh, determined uh, to uh, not close our synagogues and close our schools and be intimidated. Mm -hmm. Although we are, you know, targeted, um, we try to, uh, to make sure that our community is safe, but when you see something that's happening, so close to home to our children, then it makes you realize that you know we're so it's vulnerable. We're vulnerable, and we we have to make sure that we we don't allow this to happen. Um, this school, the Talmud Torah school, is attached to my synagogue, uh, the Spanish and Portuguese synagogue, and we are there on a regular basis in the morning, in the evening, and this is our prayer. Mm-hmm. Uh, space, uh, a community space, and to be to be attacked in that in such a way is a very scary thought, and and something that we have to uh, to uh, we have to put a stop to it.
3: No one was there, fortunately, uh, when Correct. when this happened. Uh, police are still investigating, but yes, what are. are you able to share about what you know?
1: It's a bit difficult to say at this time, but all I know is that. We have cameras all over the place, at the synagogue and at the schools. And I think uh, the uh, the, uh, the, um, police uh, force, the SPVM, is uh, very, very cooperative and uh, uh, on top of things. And they're checking all the cameras to make sure that uh, we can find the perpetrators. It's a stark reminder and also a very scary thought that Today, November the ninth is also Kristallnacht, uh,
3: the eighty-fifth um, anniversary.
1: Yeah, the anniversary, uh, and it's uh, the night of broken glass, and 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 this is the impetus, and you know w- what started the the, the the Shoah, the Holocaust, and we are not going to let this happen. So, right now we're we're on defense. You know, we're we're defending our children and making sure that they're safe but uh, hopefully that uh, this is not going to happen again and i know you know that there's another synagogue that yes. they threw a molotov cocktail at uh, at the doors uh, a couple of days ago
3: have you received any support from people outside your community from muslims in, in the montreal area or others
1: definitely definitely um I received a lot of support from I was very involved in Interfaith when I was was living in Ottawa um, very very involved in uh in Interfaith uh, relations and uh I continue to do that here and we have a lot of um Christian uh, Muslim friends others that that are you know understand that this is wrong understand that this should not be happening and um we 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 appreciate everybody that is supporting not our cause it's a universal cause we when we want to rally or when we go to vigils we do it peacefully we try to talk to people we try to if we have if there's hostages we need, we need them home and when we go to vigils and when we go to rallies is to bring people innocent people home and we don't want to fight mm-hmm. but we cannot be pushed around. I mean, how long can you be pushed around?
3: What will bring people together, do you think? There are differences certainly and different thinking as we've seen in the different protests, but there is the unifying mm-hmm. thing is that a lot of people just want peace. What do you think will bring people together? At least in I'm Montreal. I'm going to
1: tell you I'm going to tell you my thought, mm-hmm. uh my personal thought. I could very easily say uh, religion has to, you know, put aside all our differences and let's look forward. Music always brings people together. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I can put a thousand different ideas forth, but there's one thing that's going to put our people universally together, and that is if we care about our children, if you care about the next generation. If you care about your child, not living in a world that is riddled with anti-Semitism, racism, hate, then I hope that people are going to realize that if you're not doing it for yourself, then do it for the children.
3: Reverend, thank you for your time. Please take care.
1: Thank you so much. God bless.
2: Daniel Ben-Lolo is the Reverend Hazan at the Spanish and Portuguese Synagogue of Montreal. He's in Montreal. Five years after Heidi Lang's house burned to the ground, a new home stands in its place. But now she's dealing with yet another disaster. She can barely afford to live in it. Ms. Lang lives in Paradise, California. In November of 2018, most of the town was destroyed in California's deadliest fire. 85 people were killed. Heidi Lang thought that once her new home was built, the hard part would be over. And then this month, she got her insurance bill. We reached her in Paradise.
3: Heidi, what were you paying before the Paradise Fire for for your home insurance premium?
4: Um, My insurance premiums before the fire and up until just this most recent renewal ran about $1,100 a year. And now? Uh, My current renewal is at a rate of $9,754.
3: That's a big jump. To, to put it mildly, when you saw that email, that notification of that change, um, what was your reaction?
4: Well, at first I thought it was a mistake. Um, but uh, to add to that, even before I got that renewal, they uh, had tried to cancel me. Why? And uh, they listed on the cancellation a that they had identified scattered debris on my property, so I reached out to my agent, and I asked what they were referring to, and she uh, established that they had used drone footage that they had gotten two and a half years ago, and they had seen a pile of wood chips that I had delivered for landscaping, which had long since been distributed in my yard in flower beds and garden beds. Yeah. Um so I appealed that original uh, cancellation, and they listed it, and then sent me the nine hundred or nine thousand seven hundred and fifty-four dollar renewal.
3: And just just before we go any further, you have some you have some chickens on your
4: property. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry, I'm kind yeah. of out in the yard.
3: No apology needed. Just wanted to bit. just wanted to yeah. place it for our for our listeners. <laughs> but when they yeah, gave you that that initial, when they gave you that initial reasoning, what do you think was actually going on there?
4: I think they were trying to offload uh, my policy. And from gathering information from other people, there was a rash of cancellations or attempted cancellations earlier this year. Um, But I believe what happened is that the insurance companies realized that at some point, if they have excessive cancellations, then that actually brings their ratings down so they kind of shifted gears then to not canceling people but offering them these absurd renewals where they would just find another alternative and leave on their own
3: what reasoning has the has the insurance company given you for the huge
0: jump
4: uh, they base it on my fire rating uh score which mm-hmm. my personal score is a fire risk six um, which is the threshold where they can cancel you just for your fire risk. But I looked into that and did a little more research, and that score is based on three things. It's based on your access, like if you live down a 12-mile dirt road and the mm-hmm. fire trucks couldn't get to you, and your slope, and your fuel. And my personal score still um, reflects heavy fuels because that risk assessment that established that was done back in the 90s. And I don't have, now after the fire, I don't have a tree or any Mm -hmm. brush or anything within like 100 yards of my house.
3: Can you actually pay this new amount?
4: Absolutely not.
3: (laughs) This week is also the the fifth anniversary of the Paradise Fire. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about what you remember about the day y- you lost your house?
4: Well, it was a really rough day. Oh. Um, I'm sorry. I went, I went to work that day. I worked for the school district at the time. And uh, it happened so fast that I, I never made it home to get anything. And my coworkers and I stayed around at the school district office trying to uh, help reach out and contact the parents to tell them where we were going to send their children and so by the time my co-workers and I left the school district office we ended up getting stuck in traffic not far from the office and it took me about four and a half hours to get from my work down to Chico and uh, for a period of time I wasn't able to communicate with my son who was also evacuating because the cell towers went down. So there was a period of time where I wasn't sure where he was at or how you know, how it was going for him evacuating. But uh we did make it out and yeah. by some miracle myself and all my, my close friends and family and, and coworkers made it out safely.
3: How old is your son? <laughs>
4: Uh, He was 19 at the time of the fire. He's 24 now.
3: It's clearly still painful after all of these years Um, for you and others. uh, I'm sure you had built this house yourself, and you had built it in a way hoping to protect it from fire. Is that right? Yeah.
4: -hmm. Uh, Well, I rebuilt my house Mm -hmm. um, myself as owner-builder and uh, did everything I could to make it fire-resistant because I knew it would have a bearing on my my insurance not to mention just the, the safety but mm-hmm. it uh it's been quite an adventure that's for sure
3: can you imagine having to leave paradise
4: no honestly you know when i after the fire i did consider it you know before i started rebuilding i i kind of took an inventory of what was still here and what was gone and ultimately it's still my home and it's still my little village. You know, most of my friends and coworkers and my church and, you know, I belong to a lot of community service organizations are still here. And so I decided I wanted to rebuild and I wanted to come home and be a part of the next chapter of Paradise.
3: Heidi, thank you very much for your time. Please take care. Thank you
4: very much. You too.
2: We reached Heidi Lang in Paradise, California. When everything was locked down during the pandemic, a lot of us dedicated ourselves to our creative passions. Maybe you devoted yourself to baking, or you learned the harmonica and recorded an album of melancholy honking entitled Melancholy Honking. Similarly, when Michelangelo was holed up in a small room in Florence, it appears he also kept himself busy. In 1530, the artist was a wanted man, and it's believed that he kept quiet in a little chamber to avoid a death sentence. In the months he spent there waiting to leave, he apparently drew on the walls. Over the years, very few people have been able to see those sketches, but this month the Bargello Museums in Florence are opening the room to the public on a by-appointment basis. Paola D'Agostino is the museum's director. We reached her in Florence.
3: Paola, I've seen some photographs of these sketches and this room, but what is it like for you to actually stand there and take it all in?
5: It's Breathtaking. It's like stepping back through a time machine and having in front of you a 3D sketchbook uh, of this amazing period in which supposedly Michelangelo spent time in there. It's under the New Sacristy, which is one of Michelangelo's best masterpieces. And if you are in the sacristy, you would never guess that there is another room behind a door.
3: Let's just tell our listeners who haven't seen the images yet what you see in these sketches. What do they depict?
5: Well, the sketches are made in charcoal and red charcoal. When you start walking into the room and turn back, for instance, you see an amazing over life-size sketch of a nude male figure. Uh, and then you see a series of sketches and memories of parts of Michelangelo's works, like details from the Sistine Chapel ceiling, a female profile that has been connected with a study for Lida and the Swan, and a an noble life-size sketch of the head of the laucon, uh, which is an ancient sculpture that was unearthed at the beginning of the 16th century in the Vatican.
3: Are those kinds of connections to some of his other famous works, is that why you're convinced that these were sketched by Michelangelo? Because there has been some debate about you know, how, how you can know for sure.
5: Yeah, in fact, we don't know for sure. And the beauty of it is that now, each visitor who will enter the secret room will be somehow a guest of honor in this debate. Um, I personally believe that some are by Michelangelo. I don't know if they are all by him, but some have a very close and nervous way of drawing and a connection with some of the works that he was carving in marble.
3: Who or what was Michelangelo hiding from? in 1530.
5: Well, he was hiding from the wrath of the Medici family because the Medici had been sent out, chased out of Florence, and Michelangelo had not only supported the republic against the Medici dynasty, but also had contributed with his genius, genius to work on some of the fortifications that were constructed during the Republican period. And in 1530, the Medici re-entered the city, and Michelangelo, at a certain point, was sentenced to death by the then Pope, Clement VII. And for two months, according to Ascanio Condivi, who is one of the first biographers of Michelangelo's life, he was hiding in a friend's, home. And this friend's home is probably the Basilica of San Lorenzo, which is the church where the Medici chapels are. Mm-hmm.
3: This room, if I'm not mistaken, has been part of, of the museum for quite some time now, decades. Um, so how were the sketches eventually discovered? Because from what I was reading, it was basically stuff was piled in that room. But how could that happen in, in this special of a room?
5: <laughs> the room was... A sort of like storage place and the then director Paolo D'Altogetto in 1975 was searching for a new exit. Once he realized that that space was not possibly used as a new exit, he then saw a door and they decided to empty the space and see what what mm-hmm. was in. And the moment they started emptying the space, he noticed some marks on the wall. This sort of like allure of mystery has stayed on because the room was not open to the public and not easily accessible because it's a very delicate space. Occasionally, they have been open to the public, but always without a specific regulated way
3: so limited public access beginning with these tours next week but because it's it's such a small space you're just allowing 4 people in at a time as I understand it. So what is the waiting list like?
5: <laughs> well, now what we decided to do so the tickets are on sale until the end of March and I know that they are sold out. And then we continue we will continue monitoring the room if as we hope the monitoring will work out and we don't notice changes, Mm -hmm. probably in January we will open another slot.
3: There's so much beauty in Florence, so much art, so much history, obviously, and and you're with it all of the time. So did it surprise you to be surprised by something like this?
5: Uh, I think what surprises me the most is that every time I go there, I keep being surprised, even though I know what I am expecting. And this is a feeling that often happens in Florence when you are daily surrounded daily by masterpieces. Mm-hmm. But in that room, I think it's really once in a lifetime, for me at least.
3: Paola, thank you.
5: Thanks a lot.
2: Paola D'Agostino is the director of the Bargello Museums in Florence, Italy, and that is where we reached her. Civilians in Gaza will finally get a moment of relative calm. Today, after weeks of relentless bombardment, Israel agreed to begin instituting daily four-hour pauses in fighting to allow people to escape. But inside the Strip, the feeling is that there is no safe place to escape to. The U.S. is attempting to look ahead to who might govern the Strip if and when Israel completes its goal of eliminating Hamas. The main candidate is the Palestinian Authority, which currently oversees the West Bank but remains unpopular in Gaza. Today, the New York Times reported that the PA is open to playing a role, but only if the U.S. brokers a full two-state solution to the decades-long conflict. Mona Abu Amara is the chief representative of the Palestinian General Delegation to Canada. We reached her in Ottawa.
3: Mona, these new four-hour pauses that were announced today, do you see those pauses as a positive step forward, that, that they might actually be able to start to help the people of Gaza?
6: Uh, any pause, um, I think, is great because uh, of this whole nightmare that uh, millions of civilians, defenseless civilians, have been going through. So it could give them a break. But the the purpose of those uh, four hours and how they're dealt with afterwards, it is what will decide. Is it just giving uh, a chance to those civilians to get water and um, food and medical aid before bombing them again? Then it would be counterproductive um, to to do so. But the hope is that we can build on those um, pauses to get to a permanent ceasefire at some point.
3: When this conflict ends, Um, You may have seen that the New York Times is reporting today that the Palestinian Authority says it is open to a governance role in Gaza after this war ends. For you, what would that role look like?
6: a lot of uh, um outlets uh, and uh, people from uh, different countries reported on uh, this issue mm-hmm. dif- in different way but if you read the whole thing that the new york times uh, published it says that there could be a role uh, there could be an acceptan- acceptance to a role if a comprehensive solution for peace for the whole of Palestine is attained, and that is the exact thing we're saying right now. We are not talking about what's next because we are in the thing itself. What we need to stop is our people being butchered. So justice is what is needed right now, not talks about what will be after. We yeah. need to stop Israel from what it's doing right now to be ha- to be able to have an after to begin with.
3: The, uh, what, my next question was going to be about that asterisk, yeah. that that big. Condition there that the Palestinian Authority says that there would need to be a viable two-state solution, right? But we haven't been able to get to that point over these decades, as you well know. I know that the focus right now for you and many others is just what is happening at hand. But if we are looking into the future, do you see a possibility for that two-state solution even though it is eluded you know, everyone for so because, long. Um,
6: uh, a year ago, um, and I, I was uh, holding all my meetings with mm. uh, Canadian officials and MPs while every day Palestinians woke up to death, uh, settler terrorism, annexations, and demolitions. And our discussion then was to plead with everyone to take a step and to once and for all end the misery uh, of the Palestinian people being subjugated under a long, long, decades-long uh, occupation. But when we get here, now everybody wants to go back to talk about the thing that was so attainable at the time, but people did not want, and entities and organs did not want to um, take on the, their responsibility, especially because they are faced with a government that said um on each and every um, a possible resolution that they would not want to go on uh, with peaceful negotiations and uh, that would lead to a Palestinian state period. This is not a struggle that has started last month, mm-hmm. last year. So that's why we want to go to the root causes. We want at this point not to, st- to speak more about peace and two-state solution, but more about justice. Because with peace and two-state solution, you need another party to come and agree and sit on a table. And you're sending the uh, oppressed to negotiate with their uh, oppressor and see what they're going to do when you are standing as free world, a steadfast ally to them. But in justice, Canada, the US, European Union are all just uh, asked to do what they preach to implement the uh, values and principles of those um, uh, countries and nations to uh, implement the rules based international order without exception and only justice will lead to peace
3: israel is taking the military action it's taking because of hamas's attacks on people in israel as you as you know so in addition to the to the political criticisms you have there is very much that reality But the reality, as we've seen in in recent polling for people in Gaza, is that the Palestinians there, this is according to the Arab Barometer, they did did polling uh, in Gaza just before, the day before the October 7th attacks. And Hamas is not popular there, but the Palestinian Authority is not popular there either. So in the future, can the Palestinian Authority have a voice in Gaza to help rebuild when it is still so unpopular there?
6: a lot to unpack there yeah. um, Israel is doing what it's doing, it's aggression just because it's an occupying power and it can do so it didn't do it just last month again uh, the the uh, international media and uh, the international legitimacy uh, countries just came in now to the scene last month and since last month we have seen um, terror and atrocities, uh, that, uh, that no one have seen during this month that Israel uh, have has taken on a civilian population that did not do anything to them. So uh, just saying that this comes for that, we have 11,000 people massacred in the worst way. We have 4,400 children right now. So there's no excuse for that either. And uh, the worst part is this supremist uh, uh, rhetoric that someone needs to decide for the Palestinians who's going to be there, whose population. Popular, who wants to be run what? So that's going to be something that the Palestinians will find out for themselves, will decide for themselves, and will not let anybody else decide it for them because that is the problem. Everybody thinks that that decision is Israel's and it can force it. It can't. That's why we are still without a peaceful resolution.
3: Mona, I appreciate your time. Thank Please you take so care. Much. Thank you.
2: Mona Abu Amara is the chief representative of the Palestinian General Delegation to Canada. We reached her in Ottawa. Lawmakers in Wisconsin are coming together today from both sides of the aisle to bond over a drink. Today, a bipartisan resolution is set to pass the state assembly, declaring the old fashioned, the state's official cocktail. But if you've never sauntered into a watering hole in the Badger state, you might not realize that the Wisconsin old fashioned is nothing like an old fashioned you'd get anywhere else in the country or world. It's, let me put it this way. It's an acquired taste in so far as it substitutes brandy for bourbon or rye. And it adds seven up. Andy Braun is the three time winner of Milwaukee's old fashioned fest. And the sales director at the company Drink Wisconsin Blee, we reached him in Milwaukee.
3: Andy, you're a champion mixer, and your drink is set to become your state's official cocktail. Was this always the lifelong dream?
7: I guess. If you put it that way, (laughs) when you you do put it that way, that would be incredible. I mean, it really is uh, synonymous with everything Wisconsin is, you know, you think beer, you think cheese, and honestly, as a Wisconsinite and fifth generation Wisconsinite, I think brandy old fashions.
3: Really, I don't think anyone else outside of Wisconsin thinks that way.
7: I think you're right. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of a lot of people will go on vacation from Wisconsin, and they'll ask, you know, for a brandy old fashioned, you know, be it in uh, Florida or wherever they are, and they always say, "What's." Brandy? <laughs> yeah, we gotta we gotta dust this bottle off for you. You must be from Wisconsin. <laughs>
3: <laughs> there might be some angry or indignant bartenders refusing to mix that. No.
7: Oh, sometimes, yeah. You know, you get a lot of purists in the in the cocktail community. and, and <laughs> They think it's a faux pas, you know, putting soda and, and muddling fruit in a cocktail. But man, we sure love it.
3: Why do you think it's flown under the radar? I mean, I hear you with cheese, but why doesn't this have the same name recognition?
7: I think uh, as of right now, it it really is punching through. And I think just like a lot of things, social media, a lot of these little supper clubs, corner bars, and restaurants, you know, they didn't really have a platform to talk about this. It's just everyone quietly, you know, with their Friday fish fries, they were sipping on a brandy old fashioned.
3: Well, just when you say fish fry, are you talking about like, just normal fried fish, or is that something else I need to dig into?
7: That's another thing you should dig into. So Friday fish fries in Wisconsin. Uh, We actually have more lakes than Minnesota, which are known for their (laughs) plentiful lakes. And so as you can imagine, a lot of fishing goes on, and we pull those fish out, and we put them in the fryer, and we eat them with with French fries and drink old fashions with them.
3: I like all of the things you're talking about but I don't know about together, but you mentioned some of the ingredients, (laughs) you mentioned some of the ingredients off the top of our conversation, but just take us through what do we need to do and to put in, to make the perfect Wisconsin old fashioned.
7: So the perfect drink Wisconsinly Wisconsin old fashioned. You start with a a rocks glass Mm -hmm. and to that you add a sugar cube Mm -hmm. around four or five shakes of Angostura bitters, a slice of orange, a maraschino cherry. And from there, you don't add the brandy just yet. You muddle that with a muddler very lightly. Uh, you want to make sure you muddle the fruit of the orange, not the rinds. We don't want to okay. get any of those oils out, right? And then from there, you add your brandy. Uh, we we use our own brandy here, Drink Wisconsin Brandy, about two ounces of that. And then from there, you add ice. And this is the big, are you a sweet person or sour person? Because in Wisconsin, we use a sweet soda, like a 7-Up uh-huh. or or a Sprite, or you use like a squirt or fifty-fifty here in Wisconsin and you use that. So that is very much uh, if you ask for a brandy or brandy old fashioned here in Wisconsin, the bartender will ask you sweet or sour.
3: It all sounds too sweet though <laughs> for me. I have a sweet tooth, but for beverages, I don't like a simple syrup, sugar cube, none of that. So, and then brandy on top of that.
7: And brandy on top of that, and then we a lot of people do ask for just, uh, it's called a press, which is half carbonated water and half sweet soda. So it just cuts that sugar down a little bit. But yeah, it definitely is for the sweet tooth out there. Uh, you know, people are, are more used to the pre-prohibition, old-fashioned that doesn't have any of that stuff in it. Uh, it is a little bit jarring, but uh, again, we can't get enough of it here in Wisconsin.
3: And with the fish and fries, too. That's, a, that's like your oh. dessert with your dinner. <laughs>
7: Well, I'll I'll take it even further. So here in Wisconsin, uh, we love supper clubs. And yeah. supper clubs is, is uh, a fun. form. It's the best. It's the form of restaurant that it's a little bit old school where you, yeah. you go into the restaurant, a supper club. You get pre-drinks. So you get drinks at the bar before you're seated. And typically you get a brandy old fashioned. And then you make your way to your seats. And then you start with a, a relish tray with pickles and different assortments. And then you get your salad, your bread and typically prime rib and then you get more old fashions throughout and at the end you actually end it with a grasshopper or a brandy alexander ice cream drink so it's uh the brandy (laughs) old fashioned is the starter to that
3: i speechless but is it true that people (laughs) before even you get to that that platter that you talked about and all of the food that some people add olives or pickled mushrooms or pickled brussels sprouts to the brandy beverage that they're opening with
7: you, yeah, you nailed it. It's it's really uh, what, what, whatever you're feeling. So a lot of people will get blue cheese stuffed olives. No, at come drink, on. Now you're adding oh, blue absolutely. cheese. Like, uh, no. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm about to blow your mind. So at Drink <laughs> wisconsin uh we have a bar location where the Milwaukee Bucks play in the NBA. So we're right mm-hmm. in the Deer District, we have a bar and we garnish our, our old fashions with the cheese curd.
3: Okay, I mean, I could see the cheese curd, but the blue cheese, I don't. This is a lot. This is a lot to wrap one's head around. Uh, let's okay, but for we got to go to Kentucky because at least one bartender there, which mm-hmm. is home to bourbon, of course, mm-hmm. uh, had some fighting words, and this was reported by The New York Times. She said, quote, "We make the greatest old-fashioned here. It is always bourbon. It's always been bourbon. It'll always be bourbon. What do you say to that Kentucky bartender?
7: Well, if I'm in Kentucky, I'll have a bourbon Old Fashioned. I just mm. hope if he's in Wisconsin, he's going to try Brandy Old Fashioned.
3: It was a she, I will say, but
7: I, okay. I see what you're Fair saying.
3: Enough. I see what you're saying. Yeah, whatever the local delicacy is, you there should you honor go. it. Yeah.
7: And uh, if we take it even further back, the original Old Fashioned was made with rye whiskey. So mm. I would uh, challenge her to that as <laughs> well. <laughs> so territorial. Andy, thanks. Thank you so much.
2: Andy Braun is the three-time winner of Milwaukee's Old Fashioned Fest and sales director for the company Drink Wisconsin Blee. We reached him in Milwaukee. It was mid-July when the actors walked off the job. Productions were put on hold, interviews to promote new shows and films were cancelled, and paychecks stopped coming in. Now, the four-month-long SAG-AFTRA strike is over, with the news that yesterday, the union's 17 negotiators had voted unanimously to recommend that membership accept the new agreement offered by producers. Actor Caitlin Dulaney is one of those negotiators. We reached her in Los Angeles, California.
3: Caitlin, I've already seen some actors posting on social media about their upcoming projects. I'm sure they were, you know, chomping at the bit to do that. But what's left to be done before this is completely settled?
0: Well, that's fantastic to hear, first of all. That makes me very happy. Um, There'll be a national board meeting on Friday morning. The negotiating committee will be there. We'll explain the proposal, the package, the tentative agreement, and then it's up to the board to approve that. And then it will go, if they do, and and I wholeheartedly believe they will, it will go to our members to ratify. And that could take, I would say, at least a few weeks. Actors can get back to work as of today. Yes, <laughs> yes because in the meantime, what we've done is we have approved, the negotiating committee um, has approved a strike suspension agreement. So that allows members to go back to work.
3: And I know, you know, your members still have to see see the details and you're probably uh, limited in what you can share with us, but can you give us broad strokes of what you were able to achieve here?
0: So we, um, one of the most important, it's all very important, but one of the, the things that we really, really wanted to keep our eye on and didn't feel comfortable um, going off strike until until we felt good about was our AI proposal. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we know, the, the threat of AI is, is very real you know, um, for everyone in the world, but in terms of actors and their, um, the manipulation of their likeness and voice and their ability to consent to that use and be compensated for that use um was really important and um we're very happy with how much money our members will be earning
3: so do you think that they will look back on all the sacrifices and the hardship of the 120 days and all the postponed or canceled projects that they feel do you think that at the end of this they will feel that this this was worth it
0: i think i think they will i think they will be much better compensated um than they have in the past i think there's um we we also um, have established for the first time a streaming participation bonus. There's other outsized, you know, compensation increases for background performers. We've raised the pension and health caps, which haven't been raised in 40 years. So that contributes to the health plan pension, you know, and, um, you know, next time we'll be negotiating on top of this fabulous package, how, you know, in a way.
3: How late were you up to last night?
0: Well, <laughs> well, we... Stood up and passed this unanimously in the room, which was an amazing moment. And we cried and we celebrated and we all went out and went to gatherings with our strike captains because our strike captains have been holding the line and, you know, keeping people's spirits up. And although the line was an incredible place to be and everyone felt A lot of solidarity. So we were really grateful to our strike captains, very close with them. So we went out and went and celebrated with them. And um, that was still about 10 o'clock at night. But we were in the room till, you know, uh, till, um, well, we voted, I think, around 430 when we did that vote. And um, the day before and over the weekend and
3: and you talk so. about the, the, the unity, certainly, and we, yeah. we did see the, those videos of, of people on the, on the picket lines. But yeah. I, I was, I'm wondering if you were worried about any, any cracks in that unity when we see, you know, we saw A-listers, George Clooney, for example, putting forward a proposal, you know, in, the, mm-hmm. in these last days and weeks. So were there concerns that that unity was starting to, to fray a bit?
0: I don't think so. Um, you know, honestly, I think everyone understood in in our room and on the line, you know, the stress that we were all under and the pressure that we were all under, but why we were fighting for what we were fighting for and what we needed to achieve.
3: What do you think made the studios bend at the end of this? Because they certainly weren't going, they said this, everything you were asking for was impossible to fulfill. This wasn't financially
0: viable for them. So how did you get to this point? I mean, it was, Really key, honestly. I think that the CEOs came in and and negotiated personally. Um, there were a lot of tense moments. Obviously, they walked away from the table at one point. But um, I I think because they were able to make those decisions because they were in the room, they obviously did a lot of you know internal work and listening to what we were pu- you know we were putting forth and 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 they stepped up. They, they stepped up and, and met us basically where we needed to be. Um, you know, no one walked away Mm -hmm. and I'm not, I have no idea, you know, about, uh, you know, I, I just know we really pushed hard for what we needed and we, you know, we really pushed hard for a big package. And I think they understood honestly that that's what we needed, you know, in the end. And we, we were, willing to continue to strike but I you know we didn't want to do that and we didn't want Mm -hmm. to do that to the industry um I'm so I'm not sure I mean it was about that but it Mm -hmm. was also about really uh listening to our our needs and that communication that went on
3: when do you think your next audition will be are you excited to get back to work
0: (laughs) I'm so excited and everyone is so excited Um, you know, I've even read in the paper, I, I'm so, you know, a strike captain saying I've never been so excited to audition in my life. (laughs) Um, and it was actually one of the first things I was thinking of when I was driving home. Oh, fantastic. You know, um, I'm going to have an audition soon. And, and, and I think one of the reasons we're happy, we're all happy is not just because we're getting back to work, but because. You know we tentatively and you know i I believe we will have a fantastic contract that we can feel proud of, and we felt we feel respected and treated fairly, and that will play into what we what we're giving back. you know it's just very natural, so I think everyone's really excited. Caitlin, thank you. thank you.
2: Caitlin Delaney is an actor and a member of the SAG after negotiating committee. She's in Los Angeles. An update now on a story we talked about earlier this week. Days after Nargis Mohammadi began a hunger strike, the Iranian activist has ended it, her family says. The Nobel Peace Prize winner began the strike in Tehran's Evin prison early Monday after she says she was denied access to medical treatment. The dispute with authorities began after Ms. Mohammadi refused to wear a hijab while being taken to a hospital. A statement from her family says she was transported from Evin prison to a hospital without having to wear a hijab on Wednesday. An account from Ms. Mohammadi included in the statement says she was surrounded by security throughout the transfer and was unable to speak with her lawyer or see her loved ones while she was out. Nargis Mohammadi's family says she is now back in prison and is doing better since she has resumed eating. She is currently serving a sentence of more than 10 years. On June 14th, a boat carrying over 700 people capsized off the coast of Greece. There were 104 survivors and 78 bodies recovered. Hundreds more are feared to have drowned as well. It's one of the worst disasters of its kind in the Mediterranean. But how the tragedy happened is unclear. Human rights groups and survivors point the finger at Greece's Coast Guard in a botched rescue attempt. The Coast Guard claims the migrants on board refused their assistance and that the overcrowded boat sank when a large group of people moved to one side of the vessel. Today, Greece's state ombudsman announced that it's launching an independent investigation into the Coast Guard's handling of the shipwreck, which is something Effie Latsudi has called for from the start. Ms. Latsudi is with the organization Refugee Support Aegean. She spoke with Neil on the day the ship sank.
3: What do we know, Effie, at this point about what happened to this boat.
8: You know, the the official announcement from the authorities is that they, they were in distress. There was a Coast Guard boat next to them, but they were not uh, they were denying the help. And then suddenly the boat uh, capsized.
3: Just to be clear for our listeners, help was offered. Initially, uh, according to what I'm reading in the Associated Press, they accepted some food and some help of that sort. When the Coast Guard offered mm-hmm. more help, they re- the ship rejected that help. Do we know why that is? Why would they, why would they we say no? We cannot
8: know. Mm-hmm. No, we don't know because uh, uh, there is a call uh, from last, uh, from yesterday, a distress call uh, to alarm phone, and alarm phone uh, informed the authorities, and uh, the Coast Guard was there uh, last night. So it's very. It's it's if the people are calling uh, for help, it's very strange why they didn't accept the help if it was offered. So for for us, uh, we need to have an investigation to talk to the survivors and then to have the full picture.
3: I just want to uh, just uh, underline something. You mentioned Alarm Phone for our listeners. That's that's a network of, of activists and it provides a hotline for migrants mm-hmm. uh, who, who exactly. are in trouble.
8: Exactly yes and they they informed the authorities mobilize, they mobilized the coast guard the, the police and uh, they officially contact them and they have they received the call from uh, from the boat in distress
3: we've been hearing uh, about uh, those who have been recovered the bodies that have been recovered so far mm-hmm. have been the bodies of men what can you tell us about who they were where they were coming from
8: <sighs> We know that they are coming, uh, you know, all this information because we don't have direct access the human rights organization to the people, so we don't know. And if you don't talk to the people, you are not sure about the information. But the official uh, version is that these people are uh, Afghani, Palestinians, Iraqi, no, uh, Syrians and Pakistani. We know that all of them are, uh, are men, uh, But we also know that uh, there are, and this is something that we expect from our experience from other incidents, uh, that um, there are already many, many phone calls to the hospital of Kalamata uh, from family members and uh, people that they are looking for women and children. So we are afraid that uh, these people probably are uh, lost in the boat. Could this have been prevented,
3: in your
4: view?
8: definitely it could have been prevented first of all it's it's the way that the people travel and the way they travel in such a very dangerous way they risk their life Um, all the policy about refugees and migrants is a deterrence policy the other thing is that we can have a better uh, response to to support these people and to rescue them we don't Usually we don't, and we have many cases. Now we have an official version, but I believe that if we have access and uh, we investigate and we support the victims and they feel uh, safe to talk about what happened, maybe we have another version.
3: In terms of getting to speak with survivors, what is your plan for for doing that? How many people have been rescued at this point, and how, how do you go about getting in touch with them and getting them the support they need?
8: what we know and also contacting the the hospital and the and uh, uh, the, the the city where they are transferred in Kalamata in a warehouse uh, uh, guarded by the coast guard they are 104 people about 20 25 they are in hospital the others they are transferred in, uh, in a warehouse and uh, we don't have access for the moment UNHCR is there we hope that they will uh, uh, they will have more information, and in that they will uh, share this information. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, the civil society is excluded uh, by uh, systematically by the authorities in uh, in Greece. So, experienced uh, human rights lawyers and um, and uh, human rights defenders they they don't have access uh, uh, to these people.
3: You mentioned that the that the policy of deterrence it is not working only recently we also covered the story of, of, of what was caught on video we spoke to to the activist who who recorded video of of migrants or asylum seekers being put on a boat um, allegedly by Greek authorities and yes. then left left mm-hmm. adrift uh, and he said mm-hmm. that that had been happening he'd seen that happen many times before there's an election campaign in Greece right now uh, parties have agreed to candidates have agreed to suspend they're campaigning does that signal to you that that the devastation of this will actually signal some change or do you think it's a momentary pause
8: no it's a momentary pause mm-hmm. i do, i don't believe that the, all the the scenery in Greece uh, in media um, and um Many of the parties, not all, thank God, uh, they are uh, they are cultivating the fear and uh, they are feeding uh, hatred uh, the public opinion. At the same time, uh, in Lesbos, you cannot imagine what is happening. It's not, I mean, it's out of uh, of the of human mind what is happening. There are people chased in the in the, in the shore. There uh, are women separated from their children and the children are found in Turkey. It's horrible what is happening.
3: Effie, thank you for your time.
8: You're welcome. Thank you very much for your interest.
2: Effie Latsudi is with the organization Refugee Support Aegean. She spoke with Neil in June after a boat carrying migrants capsized off the coast of Greece. Dozens of people died, and hundreds of the missing are feared to have drowned. Today, Greece's state ombudsman announced that it will launch an independent investigation into the Coast Guard's handling of the shipwreck. The great detective announced, I have solved the mystery of the Costa Rica National Bank job. The crowd gasped. You are right to gasp, the detective said. It was the biggest bank heist in the history of Costa Rica. 3.3 billion colones, the equivalent of $8.5 million Canadian. To the thieves, the plan seemed like just the ticket. But it was tickets that put them in jail. The crowd gasped politely, although the sentence didn't really make sense. The robbers seemed invisible, the detective said, and indeed they were. To the surveillance system, he paused. Everyone realized they were supposed to gasp again, so they did, begrudgingly. You see, he went on, a treasurer identified a blind spot among the security cameras within the bank. And many times, over several months, they put a bit of money in an envelope in that blind spot and strolled out of the building until they had stolen thousands, then millions. Had they acted alone, they might still be free, but they had accomplices, one of whom committed a classic mistake, spending almost $8,000 every day on lottery tickets, which must have seemed like a brilliant way to multiply their money, but was in fact absolutely idiotic on every level, and ultimately resulted in police arresting that person and seven others, including the treasurer, yesterday. They thought their spree would go on forever, but for them... Like you and this crowd, that final envelope turned out to be their last gasp. And the crowd gasped again because it was the only way to make this ending make sense.